This is a little tricky to wrap your head around, but chances are you've never seen a truly white horse. Well, we know you've probably seen a bunch of horses that look like they're white horses. What with their white hair and white manes and other things that look for all the world exactly as if they are white, but they aren't. No, it's a peculiarity of the horsing community that things which look white aren't. They are, in fact, gray. And believe me, if you run into someone who knows their horses, and you mistakenly call a gray horse a white because it does absolutely look white, you'll be told immediately, and at great length, just how wrong you are. Just as if you had said Jar Jar wasn't all that bad to a Star Wars fan. It all comes down to a trick of genetics, of course. There are a couple of ways a horse gets to be a true white, one of which is having a dominant white gene. If a horse has a white coat, but also has dark pigmented skin, usually easiest to notice around the muzzle and eyes, then it is a gray of one sort or another. But if it has a dominant white gene, it has a white coat and unpigmented pink skin, so it gets to be a white, the rarest of horse colors. But not an albino. Horses don't produce albinos. So you'll definitely not see a white horse with the other classic albino indicator, pink eyes. The horse simply doesn't have the right genes available to produce a true albino. Even the true white horses have blue, brown, or hazel eyes. Although because the horsing world already has trouble with the definition of colors, they frequently refer to certain types of true white horses as albinos anyway even though they don't meet the actual definition of an albino animal. So no surprises there. Anyway, true white horses are exceedingly rare, so you probably haven't ever actually seen one. Unless, well, unless you ever watch the old Lone Ranger live-action TV series. In which case, you have seen a white horse. Two of them, in fact because the Lone Ranger's trusty steed was played by two different true white horses in that series. Which is why he was called Silver, obviously. Not that you'd know, because the series was shot in black and white for most of its run. So you'd be hard-pressed to tell the difference between a white horse in black and white and a gray horse in color. If you would like to see two white horses at once, both of the white silvers are on screen at the same time in the season 3 episode of the Lone Ranger called El Toro. Available on YouTube. Interestingly, just to the left of the two silvers is another horse, Tonto's horse, called Scout. Except, in the grand tradition of GM Word of the Week episodes, not everything is as it seems, for two reasons. First, Scout is, by tradition, a pinto, also known as a paint, both of which refer only to the horse's coloring rather than any particular breed. Pintos carry a gene that helps give them their distinctive coloration comprised of a solid color with large splotches of white over the body. This is the SB1 gene. Horses that have a dominant white gene produce true whites as described above, but horses which carry two copies of the SB1 gene, one from each parent, can also produce a true white horse, called a Sabino white. The difference is that Sabino whites usually don't produce horses with blue eyes. Otherwise, they can be indistinguishable from dominant white horses without DNA testing. And the second interesting thing about Tonto's horse is that he wasn't always Scout. For years, the Lone Ranger existed as a radio serial, where it was so successful and so popular with folks that he made the transition to the silver screen as a movie serial. Except, the producers of the serial had a problem 
that necessitated them making a significant change to Tonto's mount. You see, there were too many white horses up there on screen. You couldn't tell Tonto's usual mount, Whitefeller, described as a white horse on the radio, apart from the Lone Ranger's horse, Silver. So they made Whitefeller a Pinto, but still called him Whitefeller, which led to the radio serial producers changing Tonto's horse to a paint to match, which Tonto called Paint Horse for several episodes. Eventually, the radio producers sorted it all out, and by the time the TV series came along, Tonto's horse was a paint named Scout. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. When it comes to white horses, it's hard to ignore one of the largest white horses to ever exist. Located on the Berkshire Downs, the Uffington White Horse is a 110-meter-long stylized horse carved into the side of a hill near a stone fort. The Uffington White Horse has long been mentioned in documents dating back as far as the records of Abingdon Abbey from around 1072 to 1084 CE, and was thought to have existed for some years prior to that. It wasn't until 1990, though, that archaeologists were able to dig down and sample the material beneath the horse and determine its age more accurately. The findings put the date somewhere in the Late Bronze Age, between 1350 and 550 BCE. In creating the horse, the original builders dug down up to a meter into the ground before backfilling the trenches with clean white chalk, which made it more work to get to the bottom of than the archaeologists had at first figured, as it was more usual for such figures to be merely scratched into the surface rather than dug in. Whoever created the white horse wanted it to stay around. In fact, so interested in retaining the horse were they that it became traditional for the local residents to scour the horse every seven years. Without scouring, which involves hammering new chalk into a paste and then spreading it carefully inside the existing lines to maintain shape and color and keep it free of grass and weeds, the horse would essentially disappear beneath the turf and soil within as little as 10 to 15 years. It's a tradition that has been maintained from the horse's earliest creation date to the present day. Why the Uffington horse exists, though, is anyone's guess. Speculation includes the marking of territory, probably related to the nearby Bronze Age hill fort, to a religious practice honoring a god of the sun or representing the horses that pull the sun across the sky. To be honest, though, there's some debate about whether it is a horse or not. What else it could be is open to speculation. Some think it could be a dog, others suspect it might be a cow. It's hard to know for sure. It is close to nearby Dragon Hill, which one would think was suggestive, but apparently not. It's a very abstract figure composed of just a few lines, and the head shape can't really be said to be that of a horse, unless horses in the Bronze Age had boxy heads and rather extraordinarily prominent lips. Frankly, it looks more like a duck head to us than it does a horse, but people have been referring to it as a horse since at least the 11th century, so it'll probably stay that way. Especially since we aren't aware of any mythical beasts with the body of a horse and the head of a duck. Not yet, anyway. The Uffington White Horse isn't the only horse in England, though. There are, in the record, some 24 white horses recorded, though several of them have been lost over time. That's quite the ancient tradition for horse figures, you might be tempted to think. But before you head too far down the road of trying to find a significance for them all, let us save you a few steps. You see, 
Most of the rest of them were all carved, cut, drawn, or painted to basically give the locals something like the Uffington horse. How do the sciencey people know this? Well, it's easy. The people who made them wrote down why they made them, and they all did it in the last few hundred years or less. Of the surviving 13 white horses in the county of Wiltshire in England, the Uffington horse being just over the hill in Oxfordshire, all of them were created to give the local area in which they were found a white horse of their own. I know, I know, we thought most of them would turn out to be ancient symbols created well before modern record-keeping with mysterious purposes too. But no, they just copycatted the Uffington horse for local pride. And probably a tourism boost too. For example, the white horse at Alton Barnes was carved into the side of Milk Hill by journeyman painter John Thorne under contract to landowner Robert Pyle. In 1812, John Thorne designed the horse, subcontracted the work out to a Mr. John Harvey, and then skipped town with all the money before the work was finished or Harvey had been paid. The Broadtown White Horse was cut in 1864, so one story says, but this may or may not be accurate since at least one resident in 1919 recalled having helped scour an already existing horse in 1864, at which time he had been told it was already 50 years old. Many of the other Wiltshire white horses were cut in the late 17 to mid-1800s, usually by farmers with a bit of extra land or schoolboys looking for a project to do. Quite why they were so popular as school projects is unknown, but any bit of land with a rise above the surrounding countryside that could be seen for a few miles seemed ripe for the picking. And while we can understand that they are great sources of community pride, certainly... There is a certain amount of disappointment when you discover that things like the Hackpin White Horse were created in 1848. Even more so when discovering that a fair few of the other horses were made in the 1940s and 50s. Naturally, other locations around the world have picked up on the practice, and now you can find white horses everywhere from South Africa, created during the Boer War to guide British horse soldiers, to Chihuahua, Mexico, where a mirror-flipped copy of the Uffington horse was whitewashed into the hillside, to Waimate, New Zealand, where a white horse was constructed out of concrete by a man and his wife in the 60s to commemorate the Clydesdale horses that used to work the land. There's even a white horse in West Virginia in the United States, though it's just a small three-foot-by-two-foot horse silhouette painted on a rock. The only thing that keeps it from being entirely ignored is the fact that it gets repainted every so often by persons unknown. There are other figures carved into the hills of England. Of particular note, for a variety of reasons, is the Kern Abbas giant in Dorset. It was carved in the 17th century by Lord Hollis, in mockery of Oliver Cromwell, who was in charge of England at the time. Satirically referred to, at times, as England's Hercules, Cromwell famously made illegal almost everything that could remotely be considered fun, including Christmas, during his puritanical reign. The 55-meter-tall giant has many features which would suggest a representation of Hercules and lend credence to the theory, but you will notice none of them upon first observation. Yes, there's a club, Yes, there used to be what seems to have been a lion skin draped over one arm, but really, it will be some time before you notice them due to the giant being what one observer referred to as impressively male. Fortunately, the 17th century Longman of Wilmington, at 
172 meters tall and depicted with what looks like two walking sticks in his hands, is named for his overall size rather than any particular outstanding physical characteristic. White horses figure frequently in fairy tales, myth, and legend. For example, the traditional unicorn is discussed in our episode on unicorns, as well as Pegasus are both depicted as white horses. Pegasus was born of... Well, it depends on who you listen to, really. On one hand, he was born from the blood of Medusa as Perseus beheaded her. He just sort of sprang forth, fully formed from the cut Perseus was making, which is fine, but does mean that somehow Medusa was carrying around a fully formed flying horse somewhere about her neck region. We expect she was very relieved to have it out. On the other hand, at the moment of her beheading, Medusa's blood is said to have mingled with the earth it fell on, and then mixed with sea foam sent by Poseidon to, you know, do the job, causing a winged horse to be born along with his brother. That's right, a brother. Chrysor, by name reason you don't know much about him is that there is little enough to know. His name means roughly Golden Sword, but beyond that he seems not to have accomplished much. Oh, and sometimes he is depicted as a winged boar, which is probably why he never got invited to any of the fun things the old Greek gods did. In fact, about the only reason to have Chrysor in the Greek myths is so Heracles, the great-grandson of Perseus, later renamed to Hercules by the Romans, has someone to kill when retrieving cattle for King Aristheus in his tenth labor. Chrysor being the father of Geryon, the sometimes three-headed, one-bodied, sometimes three-headed, three-bodied giant who guards the cattle with a two-headed dog, the brother of Cerberus. Greek mythology really is a family affair. But we digress. Pegasus, of course, goes on to carry Bellerophon, future potential Greek hero, potential illegitimate offspring of Poseidon, grandson of rock-pushing Sisyphus, in the fight against the Chimera, and later on brings Bellerophon almost, but not quite, all the way to Mount Olympus. See, Bellerophon was accused of doing some quote-unquote bad stuff while a guest of King Proetus by the king's wife. It wasn't true, of course. The worst thing he'd done up to that point was potentially murder his own brother. Anyway, the queen made eyes at him, but Bellerophon rejected her, thus leading to all the trouble. She pointed the finger at him for trying to seduce her, which made Proetus sort of more or less upset. But Proetus was afraid to punish his guest for the offense, since guests in one's house are under the protection of the gods. So instead, Proetus sends Bellerophon off to visit the king's father-in-law, King Iobates, since it was his daughter Bellerophon supposedly offended. Along with him, Proetus sent a little note explaining the whole situation and asking Iobates to have him killed instead. Well, the problem with all this was that Bellerophon was real up-and-coming Greek hero material. Iobates took one look at him and was also kind of worried about how things might turn out if he just out and out tried to kill Bellerophon himself. It probably wouldn't go well, and Iobates could just see how he might become one of those footnotes in history that serve as a warning not to interrupt the usual heroic cycle. So Iobates thought, aha, I'll do the other part of the heroic Greek cycle instead and send Bell off on a quest which will probably get him killed anyway, but at least then I won't be blamed. Perfect, how could this go wrong? So Iobates asked him to go and kill the Chimera in the next county over. 
Well, the way it could go wrong was if Bellerophon got the help of Athena and a few other gods along the way and captured Pegasus to serve as his mount during the fight, which then allowed him to combat the Chimera from the air and eventually wedge a block of solid lead down its throat, which the Chimera's fiery breath melted, effectively drowning the beast in molten lead. Neat, huh? Frankly, though, we're a little suspicious. How come the fiery breath didn't melt the lead before it became a problem? Why didn't the Chimera just tilt its head down and let the molten lead run out rather than in? If the Chimera's breath is hot enough to melt lead, how did Bellerophon even get close enough to it in the first place without he and Pegasus being incinerated before the battle even got started? And we're not alone in our skepticism. Even King Iobates had his doubts about Bellerophon's veracity. So much so that he sets Bellerophon on a series of other tasks which, aided by Pegasus and some more godly interventions, he successfully completes. But that Chimera thing gets him thinking. I must really be something special, he decides. I mean, look at me. All these quests were a snap. I killed the big scary Chimera. I'm unstoppable. Which is a mistake, as his grandfather could have told him. It's a short step from I must really be something special to I'm probably some sort of god. Let's go knock on the doors of Olympus and demand to be let in. But Bellerophon seems like the sort of person who would ignore his grandfather's good advice about not being arrogant. Up he gets on Pegasus and starts flying up Mount Olympus, forgetting just how much help he has had, and from whom, in getting all this stuff done. Well, you can imagine how well that played among the gods. Who does this mortal think he is, trying to come up here and demand entrance? We don't care if he is one of Poseidon's shirt-tail offspring. We've got those by the dozens. They probably said, while side-eyeing Poseidon, who'd found an incredibly interesting starfish to be suddenly very absorbed in. He's not getting in here while I have anything to say about it, says Zeus, who then sends a gadfly out to sting Pegasus, which it does, causing Pegasus to startle and throw Bellerophon to the ground far below. He survives the fall, only because Athena once again intervenes and causes him to land in a bush, which breaks his fall. But even she seems to be getting tired of him, since it is a bush full of thorns, and it blinds him. It's open to interpretation as to how helpful that actually was. Now hated by the gods and mankind for his arrogance and hubris, that pretty much ends his story. Pegasus, on the other hand, makes out reasonably well. He gets all the way up Olympus and the gods invite him in, presumably on the grounds that the really heroic thing was putting up with Bellerophon this whole time and apologized for the gadfly thing by making him the official thunderbolt bearer to Zeus. Which seems like a nice cushy job to retire to. Thanks for listening to this episode of GM Word of the Week. It appears by anonymous request of one of our listeners, which is something we sometimes do. GM Word of the Week is supported by the kind contributions of our listeners via Patreon. If you'd like to help support the show as well, you can do so by heading to our support page on our website at gmwordoftheweek.com. Click the yellow banner at the top, and you'll be shown all sorts of options, including our newly sorted out merchandise options from Redbubble. Get a shirt, why not? It all helps prevent the appearance of strangely non-sequitur ads for microtransaction mobile games in the middle of the show. Which is good. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey, 
who could make a Lone Ranger-based pun quite easily, but shall refrain. Music for this episode was provided by the kind folks at Blue Dot Sessions, who have some very interesting things coming up in the near future. Tink what a horse looks like. It's what a horse be.